0: Good afternoon, everybody. This is the Great
1: Lakes Broadcasting Company of Chicago, operating WENR on 870 kilocycles and W9XF on a frequency of
0: 6,020 kilocycles by authority of the Federal Radio Commission.
1: As we open our program, you hear the studio orchestra and Frank Westfall playing My Sweeter Than Sweet,
0: and he's so unusual. Let's just go ahead, let's take in the setting, right, The the United States is sliding deeper into the Great Depression, uh, of course kicked off by the Black Tuesday stock market crash in late 1929, millions are already unemployed, the Hoover administration is flailing in its attempts to control the economic crash that's sweeping the globe, and against this backdrop, of course, and spurred on by prohibition, Criminal enterprises have engulfed cities all across the country, and none perhaps more famously than that of Al Capone and his Chicago outfit. The St. Valentine's Day massacre stole headlines nationwide in early 1929, creating a, an almost mythological uh, status for the city's gangsters. And so crime found a welcome home, right, in the city by the lake, you know, in Chicago here, a town that would bear the burden of the Depression more than most. Its government was nearly insolvent. Uh, its manufacturing base was on the way to, to an incredible 50% unemployment within 48 months of the beginning of the Depression. But, but the city tried to soldier on. That They'd already planned the 1933-34 World's Fair, uh, touting, of course, Chicago's Century of Progress. This was already on the books for, for the rail hub and, and manufacturing center Uh, Of America was really determined still to put on this great show for its visitors despite what was you know the the economic ravages going on throughout the country and so with that uh, already completed was the Grant Park Stadium which would be renamed Soldier Field in honor of those lost during the Great War Uh, Union Station which is now a, a neoclassical icon of the city soon followed uh, the future Midway Airport was completed. The straightening of the Chicago River was completed. Uh, the new west side Chicago Stadium, home of the Blackhawks and later the Bulls, was completed. And uh, the christening of, the, of the, uh, the Merchandise Mart, which was the world's largest building before the construction of the Pentagon in the 1940s. And along the lake, uh, in the late weeks of May 1930, and astride the columns of the Great Soldier Field, uh, the Adler Planetarium and Shed Aquarium both opened uh, just weeks before a football club from Glasgow right into town So this is a scene the champions of Scotland found in the second city of the United States and this is the scene of the first edition of a new crow special series in heart and hand as we're going to look back on the great North American tours of Rangers Football Club starting with 15th June 1930 as Rangers take on Chicago Sparta
1: Every at home
0: Simple sense of love Welcome the first episode of this new CrowPod project on hard uh, in Hand here is I take a look at the, uh, the great North American tours of, of Rangers Pass. For the first episode, I'm going to stick kind of close to home. We're going to look at uh, Rangers stop in Chicago in June of 1930 uh, when they, they came to take on uh, Chicago Sparta following a 66-hour train ride from Calgary, Alberta <laughs> on the 14-stop North American tour. Just to get a little background here and get some of the stuff out of the way, because you know obviously we're going to talk more about some of the some of the other matches on this tour as the series progresses. Uh, to close out the the 1929-1930 season, of course Rangers had won the league for the 19th time, uh, and, and and had won what what papers were calling the world's greatest clean sweep the, um, the the league title, the Scottish Cup, the Glasgow Cup, and the Glasgow Merchants Charity Cup. Raw won. Even the uh, the the second eleven had won the reserve league. Now the charity cup uh, actually almost cost Rangers their departure date. Uh, being played Saturday the tenth uh, of May at Hamden, with of course our our rival Celtic as the opponents. After ninety minutes, scores were level. Thirty minutes additional were played, and and even that wasn't enough to uh, to to get a result. And with a replay out of the question as Rangers would have been somewhere in the middle of the North Atlantic uh, on the proposed date. The match was settled by a coin flip and it was the uh, king's head that faced up. Rangers taking the the cup on the day and and finishing off a a domestic quadruple uh, followed by a quick trip to the uh, hotel and then on to the RMS and Dania. Now, a note about this ship here. It was actually drafted in the service in World War II and uh, 10 years to the day. Following uh, the the match that we're going to discuss here in a minute, uh, on fifteenth June nineteen forty, the ship's hit by a German U boat off the uh, off the coast of Iceland. Thankfully, all the crew's saved. Uh, so, good note to end that one on. But uh, the, to get back to the tour here. Now, the, this is of course uh, the Rangers' second tour of North America, and and Rangers were not not the first clubs to to partake of these. Uh, these types of tours. I mean, Pre- Preston North End had done so also in 1928, the same year that uh, Rangers came over the first time. Uh, Real Madrid had, had toured in 1927, Sparta Prague in 26. Uh, Corinthians FC, which we'll talk about a bit here later, the uh, the former uh, London club had, had come over as early as 1901 and returned multiple times after that. So th- th- there was already an appetite for football. And Rangers on this trip, now, this is a 14-stop trip spanning the entire continent, right? They land in Montreal, they go all the way to Vancouver, they come all the way back to New York and end up leaving from Montreal again, taking over four weeks on this trip. And they played to crowds totaling over 130,000 people on this this journey, which at that time, that's a hell of a lot of people going to uh, exhibition matches in the middle of summer. Uh, as the, the depression is, is really just getting underway and so hopefully that uh, that paints a little bit of the picture of what Rangers were, were coming to on this 1930 tour. As we go further into the series we're going to spend more time talking about the individual players and and some more stories with the club but really I just wanted to get some of the, the you know the, the general background out of the way here because one of, the, one of the main things I want to do in this series is look at these cities and, and clubs. That Rangers played on these tours and and look at some of the individual characters that fit into the stories of those sides. And so with that, we're going to take a look at the city near and dear to my heart, Chicago. (laughs) So a century of progress. All right, let's, let's start there. Let's start there with the name for the uh, forthcoming 1933-34 Chicago World's Fair, set, set for a couple years after Rangers' visit, but I think it's a really good inflection point for how the city was viewed. Of course, Chicago um, had been around for slightly more than a century, like every other North American uh, city. Uh, Native Americans have been there for a long time. And in fact, uh, Europeans arrived more than a century before uh, it was Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, uh, a black man of French-African descent, possibly from Haiti, who arrived in 1780. And I you fast forward 150 years and everything is great. Here we are, folks, at Chicago's world-famed Century of Progress, the spectacular fair that was started by a beam of light from the star Arcturus. People from every corner of the world came to see its magic and its marvels. No less than 22 millions of them came swarming into this colossal show to witness the brilliant handiwork of its modern, unparalleled ingenuity. Of course, that's not the case. Americans get there really in 1803 when Fort Dearborn is built. And this is on land ceded from Native Americans. I think ceded is is the way that we say stealing. Uh, the, the original fort is destroyed by the War of Horrible British Aggression uh, in 1812. <laughs> Chicago itself begins with a modest population of 200 people in 1833. A- and this is this is a swamp. I, I, I think, I can't really overstate this enough. The, the site that Chicago was built on was a swamp on the southwest corner of Lake Michigan. So, for this city to rise in the way it did was, was a pretty incredible situation, given that Detroit was already established, uh, Cleveland was already established, although Lake Erie itself is a hellhole. So, Chicago's incorporated in 1837, and, and it just sparks an era of rapid growth, right? For, for the next few decades, it's, it's the quickest growing city in the world. Railways opened in the 40s and 1840s. And uh, canal connections to the, to the Mississippi River opened around the same time, too. So now you have this industrial manufacturing hub right in the middle of the country. And uh, immigrants come from everywhere. So this here is where I think we see the, the true progress of the 1800s, because they build sewage systems. Holy shit, sewage systems. And not only that, this some of this stuff that they do here is a little bit crazy. I'm not even going to lie. They take the whole central part of the city and raise it with hydraulic jack screws so people stop living in their own shit. The problem now is that it's flowing into the river, then to the lake, then back into the water system. So now they're drinking it. They reverse the flow of the river, taking its water away from the city and toward the Illinois River via the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. Every now and then, we look at things done a long time ago, which would seem impossible today.
1: The reversing of the flow of the Chicago River would still be regarded as an engineering marvel. They basically took nature and reworked it. When the first French explorers visited this spot in the 1600s, of course, the river was wide open. But Chicago grew very big very quickly. The lake was getting polluted. And by the late 1800s, city fathers decided something had to be done.
0: And this is the true progress of the 1800s, the the revolutions in health for for city populations. I mean, Chicago was at the forefront of all this. The aesthetic progress was undone by a cow in October of 1871. Uh, Of course, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in her barn, allegedly, And the Great Chicago Fire wiped out about five square miles of the downtown area. But it left most of the railways and stockyards and everything on the western edge of the city unscathed. So what this allowed to happen was for the city to be rebuilt as the home of modern architecture, right? The world's first skyscraper is finished in Chicago in 1885. So it wasn't really a century of progress a steady century of progress it was 50 years of of engineering feats to allow the city to even exist a fire to decimate the extant city and then 50 years of building on a perfectly clean slate on the shores of lake michigan and with all this the the immigrants flocked to the city by 1900 more than three-quarters of the population uh, were either immigrants or born into the U.S. to foreign-born parents, right? These are the people that built the city from the ashes, who maintained the parks, who filled the baseball stadiums, the theaters, and music halls, and who formed legendary sports clubs of their own. And so that brings us to uh, Rangers' opponent. In uh, 1915, a group of uh, immigrant Czechs began the uh, Sparta Athletic and Benevolent Association Football Club. Uh, and, and this would go on to become one of the more dominant football clubs in, in, the, uh, in the Chicago scene and, and throughout the country in this time. They won the Chicago City Championship at least 11 times uh, between the, the 20s and 40s. Um, they won the Peel Cup, which was the Illinois State Trophy, uh, 12 times between, again, the 20s and, and their final one coming in 1969. Uh, and they won two U.S. Open Cups, in 1938 and 1940, and finished runners-up again in 1947. So I mean, this was a very well-established club, and, and Sparta was one, you know, at the time of, of their formation, much of uh, the Chicago football scene was dominated by the British ethnic leagues. Association football was first demonstrated at the 1893 World's Fair at the Columbian Exposition. A uh, friendly between Corinthians FC and the Chicago All-Star Elevens played in uh, 1911 under the floodlights at Comiskey Park, the the home of the White Sox, uh, finishing 11-1 Corinthians on the day. So there there was an appetite for football uh, among the masses, And, and Sparta really were revolutionary in in so much as being one of the first immigrant clubs, one of the first bohemian clubs that that really started to dominate, uh, especially throughout the Midwest, between St. Louis, Chicago, and Milwaukee, which were great hubs of of football in America. Um, And I I think it's important here to kind of address one of the myths, again, perpetuated by MLS and and its marketing partners, which is that soccer – It never had any kind of natural development. And that's simply not true. Uh, In the first half of the century, I mean, many of these clubs built and had established followings. And the US Open Cup, I mean, it was a well attended, highly competitive annual event. With clubs, I mean, some of these clubs routinely drew spectators around the 10,000 mark, which was a pretty damn big number for the day. I mean, many major league baseball clubs were having a hard time hitting that kind of number. And really, Major League Baseball is kind of the the kickoff point for for where this myth comes from, the one that MLS tries to to play into today. I mean, one, the Supreme Court gave it the power to operate as a monopoly, right? And coming out the back of the failure of the Federal League, which tried to challenge the supremacy of both the National and American Leagues in the mid-19s, the Supreme Court basically gave MLB the carte blanche to operate uh, as it saw fit in, in the professional aspect of the sport. So this gave them, uh, as part two, the ability to l- subsue all the small independent leagues that that had been operating since the formation of organized baseball in this country. And what, what the Supreme Court decision uh, effectively did was, again, allow Major League Baseball to, to monopolize the talent and and create what we have now as as the modern franchise system in American sports. The NHL followed suit. The NFL soon followed suit. And so since then, you know, it's it's driven these smaller independent clubs like Sparta, uh, like R.W.B. Adria here in Chicago, like Bavarian uh, Football Club up in Milwaukee— into this kind of realm of, of non-existence Because every attempt to organize football In the United States since then Has been driven by a franchise-based system And so here's, here's the space that, that Chicago Sparta operated Right Again, formed around 1915 But really it wasn't until 1923 um, In that year, the, the club was able to sign A bunch of new Czech immigrants Who had experience in association football In their home country and they began this period of absolutely dominating football in the Chicago scene, right? Again, because they drew on perhaps a wider base than, than the the classic ethnic British clubs did. I mean, there, there's a period between 1927 and 1939 where they win 11 of the 13 leagues competed during that time. So the, this is not a club that's going to shirk the challenge of Struce boys coming to town. I mean, they, they've been playing international friendlies uh, going back to, to the early 1920s. And they played in some of the bigger stadiums. They play in Comiskey Park. They play in Soldier Field when, when some of these larger teams come. They have their own ground. Down on the south side at the corner of Twenty First and Costner that seats around nine to ten thousand people, finally paved over as a parking lot for nearby factories in the fifties. So uh, this this is a real football club. I think I think it's it's one of the hard things for people to grasp on these tours. Yes, they were exhibitions, and obviously Rangers were a superior superior club to to the ones that they were coming in to face on the nineteen thirty tour. Of course, I mean, we played fourteen. 114 scored 68 goals and only conceded 20. Right, we were by far the better outfit, but a lot of these were very good professional clubs, and this was not Rangers' first trip uh, to Chicago on, on these truth tours. We showed up in, in 1928, and and it's it's an odd thing here because the, the 1928 match right was. It was set up as a... It was set up by the St. Andrews Society, okay? They hosted the match. The proceeds were supposed to go to the Scottish Old People's Home. And for whatever reason, they couldn't really build any kind of media uh, hype around this thing. And it's odd because the McCormicks at the time, Scots, owned the Chicago Tribune and gave very little coverage to either the 1928 visit or ultimately the 1930 visit. So, uh, we ended up playing a group of Illinois All-Stars, or a select 11, uh, in 1928 in front of a pretty small attendance. Uh, Rangers rolled out 4-1 win winners on that day. This, this is less than two years later that, that we come back. And Sparta, I think, really latched on to, to a good idea here, though, because not only did they keep their own club identity, I mean, th- this was a side, with, I, I think ultimately they started five or six. Uh, ethnic Eastern Europeans in their 11. But then they went out and brought in some of the more well-known Scottish names of the day. Uh, Clem Cuthbert, who was from uh, Clydebank. Wee Willie McLean, also from Clydebank, who'd emigrated here in the early 1920s and established themselves as names in the Chicago football scene, both of them actually with the, the bricklayers in the Mason's Football Club. And th- and this is a club that lost two US Open Cup finals in, in the span of just a few years, right, right around 1930. So I mean, this is a highly competitive outfit, right? Uh, McLean to me is is one of the more interesting figures around this match. McLean, as I said, he, he's born in Clyde Bank in 1904 and, and emigrates to the US when he's 19. He sells in Chicago. And the first club he's playing for is Pullman FC. Now the Pullman Company, of course, made uh, railroad cars. Huge company. But George Pullman he built his own town, basically, on, on the south side of Chicago. The, the Pullman Football Club was was founded in 1893, coming out the back of the World's Fair. And, and it's around this time that that in the early mid 1920s that more of the ethnic clubs are starting to form up and driving some of these established clubs out. McLean then hops to the uh, Chicago Canadiens Club And then finally to the uh, Bricklayers and Masons uh, Football Club Who he's playing for when, when uh, he, he comes into the, uh, the Sparta side for this Rangers match McLean actually ended up, he, he goes to the World Cup in 1934, right? Uh, the U.S. defeats Mexico 4-2 in World Cup qualifier Of course, we, we lose to Italy um, in 1934 he Comes back, he's playing in St. Louis at this time and, and, and there's some, I, he ends up, he breaks down, he collapses on the field during a league game in 1936 and spends nine months in the sanitarium. Then he moves back to Chicago. He gets to Chicago, he's keeping a low profile, he's not really showing up in any football. And in 1938, Willie McLean just disappears. His family kept receiving Mother's Day cards. From, from towns up and down the, the Mississippi River for, for the next several years, 1944 the Adena Life Insurance Company, they placed an advertisement in the Midwest Soccer News hoping that somebody had seen him pop up uh, in a league I mean, let's let's be honest, old footballers never really want to quit playing, right? But there's no sign of him ever again So Willie McLean who, who plays a, a key part and again uh, is is the, really the highlight uh, of the Sparta side drafted in to, to face Rangers on this day. And so let, let's just bring us to the match here. Uh, Rangers have left uh, Calgary uh, just a few days before, which is a hell of a trip. I mean, over 2,500 kilometers from Calgary to uh, to Chicago. And, and there, there's a note along the way on, on this trip, um, which... I'm I'm not a dumb man, right? Bill Struth's been dead a long time, but I'm not going to question him. But but there's a note that's come up before, and uh, I believe you can go find this on Follow Follow somewhere in, in the forums. But but this is this comes up uh, from a newspaper in New South Wales, dated fifteenth uh, August, nineteen thirty. So a couple months after this, and so only mention of this I can find. But Struth tells the story of of a. Um, a bridge washing out on the railway, and that the the train had just pulled up a few hundred yards short of the bridge, Uh, just enough advance warning to save save the club. I can't find any other reference to this in any kind of contemporary accounts from U.S. or Canadian papers. I can't find any reference to a bridge collapse uh, during this time in 1930 along major rail lines. Um, There was obviously... Uh, some pretty damn heavy rain system moving through the Midwest at this time. The match itself is played under just horrible conditions. I mean, almost monsoon conditions. But, I, I, again, I mean, I'm mean, i not going to call Bill Struth a liar. I just can't find any other reference to this besides one, one note in a paper in Australia two months after the fact. Now, our good friend uh, Gary Havlin, uh, who used to do some work with us on, on the Old Crow, as it were, uh, says he he does remember something that may be in John Allen's book. Thankfully, Gary, uh, whose research we are using for some of the program here today, will be joining us for later episodes in the series, so we should be able to find some clarity on that. And, uh, j- of course, don't forget, Gary you can always find on Twitter, at Rangers Facts. But, uh, again, r- Rangers arrive. Here we go, June fifteenth, 1930. Soldier Field, beautiful Soldier Field on Lake Michigan. This This massive... Massive stadium. can seat 74,000. If you use the little grassy knoll, it can seat up to 120,000. Just just a beautiful memorial uh, built here on the lake. A beautiful home of sport. At the turn of the century, Chicago was a sprawling city with big dreams and big plans. Especially for a piece of soggy landfill just south of the brand new Field Museum. City leaders wanted to build a memorial to the nation's
1: fallen soldiers, the largest sports stadium ever constructed, with a massive tower that would dominate the city skyline. There was going to be something that looked like a combination of the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument. It was going to be the Lincoln Memorial with the Washington Monument on top of it. The giant
0: tower was never built, but the classical colonnades rose quickly on the lakefront. For Chicagoans, they would become the real memorial the horseshoe-shaped stadium designed by architects Holibird and Roche would become the heart of the city's civic sporting and cultural life costs way too goddamn much money but you know hey so sometimes you just gotta piss money up a wall right before the, the country goes spiraling into a depression Sparta show up with their uh, you know quasi Sparta lineup it's um. Again, I, I, I'll post a bunch of this stuff in the notes for the show. There's some names in there that, of course, you look at and you go, "That's just not exactly an Eastern European team. And about 6,000 fans, sadly. All right, so th- th- this is the second one of these trips. Now, Sparta, Sparta have played matches at Soldier Field and Comiskey Park, drawing more than 12,000 supporters for a match. This is the second time in just a couple of years that Rangers have showed up in Chicago. Uh, the first time... Absolutely no help whatsoever from the media. They get around five thousand people this time. It's pissing down rain, uh, and six thousand people so brave, brave the elements to get out there to watch Rangers take on this uh, kind of a mixed part of side. Rangers roll out four-one winners uh, on the day, and then by accounts a pretty good spectacle. Again, McLean puts on the show for for the home side. Rangers just. Do what they do. I mean, McPhail and Morton start replacing uh, the Messieurs Brown and uh, Nicholson. And Struth was really, he he was, he was, I mean, this is a point where he's really rotating attack, especially after the season's over, right? I mean, this is a 14-match tour covering the entire span of the continent. I mean, Rangers depart in Montreal, go all the way to Vancouver, British Columbia, turn around and come back and play matches along every stop of the way. So Rangers grab too early through uh, Morton and McPhail. Uh, They're they're leading 2 0 going into halftime. And from the, again, from contemporary counts, this team looks gassed, right? And let's be honest. He just hopped off, again, a 2,500 kilometer train ride from Calgary, Alberta, where apparently you almost died, right? So you're pretty goddamn tired. Uh, Sparta jump on this in the second half and come out and score one early. Uh, And they really keep the pressure on throughout the second half. Again, Willie McLean drawing praise from local press, perhaps more because they could spell his name than a lot of the other Sparta players. But it's uh, two late goals from from the Jimmys, Fleming, and Marshall, which uh, put, put this match away, again a 4-1. And uh, Rangers pack up, and thankfully this time they've only got a, a short trip over to Detroit three days later. And so Sparta would go back to dominating the uh, local Chicago leagues and, and competing, of course, on the national scale. Rangers would go back to, well, being Rangers. And uh, Soldier Field, uh, the home of the Chicago Cardinals NFL team and the eventual home of the Chicago Bears and one day home to a giant flying saucer that landed in the middle of it. This, of course, would not be its last foray into football. Uh, Soldier Field, of course, playing host to to a number of games in the 1994 World Cup, the 1999 Women's World Cup, and God knows how many CONCACAF Gold Cup matches now. And, of course, the, the original home of the Chicago Fire, Uh, before they moved to beautiful Bridgeview, Illinois, which is not in Chicago, before returning to Soldier Field uh, this season. So that ends the the football part of the show. So if that's all you're here for, you're good to go. But I I think it's going to be an important part of this series. Obviously, we're going to talk about the the communities, the the stadiums, the clubs that Rangers played, um, but also the cities that they left. And Chicago... Built on the back of immigrants, right? But, but let's not fool ourselves because those immigrants were not simply Italians and Czechs and Germans and Scots and the Irish. Right. They were the blacks leaving the South in the Great Migration North to the uh, in industrial cities. Of course, this being America, um, I, you know, r- racism is a, is a flexible thing. And I've lived in the South and the North. There's there's a unique brand of Midwest racism, and it is born of a program introduced in Chicago in the 1930s by the uh, homeowners loan corporation. And if you've ever heard of redlining, this is this is where that term comes from. And
1: now, through the use of a National Housing Act insured mortgage, is brought within the reach of all citizens on a monthly payment plan. In the midst of the New Deal, when the FDR administration is looking for ways to try to stabilize the housing market. The Fair Housing Act is passed in 1934. And as part of that, the Homeowners Loan Corporation is also established with the hope that if you could establish long-term mortgages with fixed interest rates, you could create pathways to homeownership for most Americans. This time they can buy this house with monthly payments that are less than they now spend for rent. When the FHA starts underwriting mortgages in the 1930s, this really is a game changer in a lot of ways. It takes a lot of risk off the banks, it places it onto the federal government, and now working class, middle class families, they're able to purchase a a home. Unfortunately, as part of that, what what the HOLC does is it establishes uh, designations for neighborhoods based on the occupants of those neighborhoods. And what's so powerful about this kind of scale of measuring investment, it was about values and people. The fact of the matter is that there was no evidence that those people who lived in those communities, predominantly black and brown people and foreign-born people, would have defaulted on loans. There are no firm realities behind the close proximity to blackness and your property values going down. That's just not true. The FHA is being very upfront and very explicit in how they are linking spatial desirability with racial occupancy. It's this racialization of space idea.
0: It's not that it's only segregated. It's that Chicago invented, I I think, modern uh, segregation in the U.S. And for people who think that this stuff doesn't matter to this day, right, uh, most of these people are the kind of folks who think that, like, segregation suddenly ended... And the school systems in Brown versus Board of Education, ignoring the fact that Detroit created a system by which to resegregate their schools, modeled across the country, um, that the Civil Rights Act in 1968 just ended your ability to be a racist because we passed a law. You know, the, the, the average per capita income in Chicago's uh, white neighborhoods to this day is nearly three times that of its black neighborhoods. And then, of course, there's the incarceration rates, right? The the incarceration rate in uh, West Garfield Park, which is the, the the black neighborhood with the highest rate of incarceration, uh, is nearly 40 times higher than that in the white neighborhood uh, of Clearing, which is the, the white neighborhood with the highest rate of incarceration. I believe it was Robert Sampson, the, the, the Harvard uh, um, sociologist, who said that Blacks and whites inhabit such different neighborhoods in Chicago that it's not possible to compare the economic outcomes of black and white children. But I'm not going to end this on a uh, total down note. Uh, to me, Chicago is still the greatest city in the world, and it's pretty damn cool that Rangers have a, a couple footnotes in the history of this great city. This
1: is my
0: kind of... Chicago is My kind of town Chicago is My kind of people too People who Smile at you And each time I roam Chicago is Calling home Chicago yes. That, my friends, will do it uh, for the first one of these. Uh, as the crow pod, on heart and hand here, goes back and looks at stops along the great uh, Rangers North American tours of yesteryear. Uh, my hope going forward is to get some of our friends involved with interviews. Obviously, Chicago's a city I, I know quite a bit about. But as I branch out further, to some of our Canadian stops or places along the eastern seaboard. I'm going to be looking to bring in local uh, local voices, hopefully to, to lend a little bit more color to the setting. you got to take a minute here, of course, to thank Gary Havlin, who, like I said, will be back for some of the later episodes. Uh, WTTW Chicago, ABC7 Chicago, uh, Minneapolis PBS station, the Chicago Tribune, uh, a gentleman by the name of Logan Gabriel, who wrote a dissertation at Northern Illinois University on football in Chicago around the turn of the 20th century, which is a hell of a, a interesting read beyond just the stuff uh, dealing with Sparta. And let me know what you think. Hopefully you liked it. If not, tough shit. Go listen to the regular Crow Pod, and we will see you for that one here soon. Bye. One town that
1: won't let you down. It's mine.